Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, I'm speaking to you probably an hour or so before the arraignment of former President Donald J. Trump. I don't think we exactly know the time it's going to go off. Doesn't really matter. Courtroom won't really be open to cameras or microphones or anything like that, probably. And we don't want it to turn into a media circus. But it did anyways. <laughs> so we decided we would help you understand what's going on. We've got one of our favorite legal experts, somebody who handles this uh, specific intersection of politics and law. Uh, his name is Ross Garber. He is a wonderful attorney. And then we're also going to take your questions or let you call up and comment. Phone calls, 888-720-WNPR. That'll be after Ross. 888-720-9677. Write, those, write the number down, memorize it, and then swallow the paper, okay? But be careful you don't choke because it's a, not a good idea. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. And welcome. Welcome to our pre-arraignment coverage. If the uh, arraignment of uh, President Trump uh, happens as scheduled, it would begin around 12, uh, 2.15 p.m. our time. Um, there will be no cameras in the courtroom. There are pool cameras that get in there at the beginning, I think, for still photography. I believe the judge has record, is uh, prohibiting any electronic recording devices of any kind. So it seems, I mean, if that order holds, it's unlikely that you will know exactly what's happening until it's over. Although news organizations have been known to kind of tag team this, like, you know, run it to the back of the room, try to get it to the person outside the door. I don't know. I don't know the layout there. Uh, however, NPR is uh, certainly committed to uh, covering this. Uh, Mary Louise Kelly has also issued kind of an edict on the ear saying it's not going to get to, it's not going to turn into a circus. Good luck with that. Uh, but I mean, our heart's in the right place. We are going to take your questions and comments later, a little bit later in the show. We will open up the phone lines for you. Right now, though, we're going to talk, when, I, when we decided to do this yesterday, to kind of throw out our plans and do this, I said, I know we don't have a lot of time to book guests. If we can have one guest uh, and we can only only get one guest. I would like it to be Ross Garber. And Ross Garber is here, a lawyer specializing in political investigations and impeachment, a legal analyst for CNN. We go back a ways, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, and Ross has been with us many other times before, including on our other uh, podcast, Pardon Me. Uh, so, Ross, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's always good to be here. We should just disclose that Ross represents several of uh, uh, President Trump's former aides, but not in connection with this New York issue. Um, so, That's right. So um, I don't know where we should begin. I'm, part of the problem, obviously, is we don't know what we need to know. We do not know all kinds of things that are in the actual indictment unless they've trickled out in the last few minutes since I went in the studio. And, and what is it we want to know? What What will make a difference today? Well, we don't know probably the most important thing, putting the circus aside. And, you know, I, I really do think this is mostly today about the circus. 
Um, we don't know what he's charged with. And that's really what this is all about. You know, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, you know, we've, we've heard, uh, uh, you know, sort of, you know, reporting from, you know, very solid reporters that there's going to be in excess of 30 counts, uh, that it's going to be about, uh, the former president's business records. Um, but we really don't know exactly how, uh, how the offenses are charged, what the offenses are. Um, it seems that they are at least in part related to these payments, uh, that were made to Stormy Daniels and the recording of those payments in the uh, in the books and records of the Trump organization. We've, we we hear good reporting that that's what it's about, but but specifically how these cases how this case is charged is, is going to make a difference, and it's hard to kind of size up the strength um, or weakness of the case without that. Now, and and we've seen lots and lots and lots of people doing that. Uh, on cable TV and all sorts of other places, but it's really, you know, at this point, without seeing the charges, it's it's all just guesswork. Right, we're sort of in Plato's cave. We can see some shadows. We don't really know what they're shadows of exactly. So things we might want to know, and I'm assuming all or most of these will come out in the indictment. Well, first of all, we'll find out how many counts there really are. Michael Isakoff has 34 as his number right now. I don't know if DraftKings is taking bets or anything, but 34 is a number that's being tossed around. I assume, Ross, first of all, I assume what we're going to have is a so-called speaking indictment that will sort of walk through the case. Uh, would that be your guess? Maybe even tell people a little, little bit more about what that term would mean. Yeah, so, you know, indictments and uh, can be either just, you know, here are basically, you know, uh, you know, the the bare minimum facts to satisfy the legal standard to allow a judge to size up whether there's, you know, a, enough there uh, to to proceed to trial, or uh, an indictment can have a lot more information um, beyond that, and that's that's often referred to as a speaking indictment. Um, I would expect that's what we're going to see, and I hope that's what we're going to see. Um, I think the the less mystery about all of this, the better for the process, the better for the American people. And, and you know, I, I would expect that the district attorney, both being an experienced lawyer and a politician, uh, is going to have more than just the bare bones in this indictment. And, you know, when there's a speaking indictment, I, I, I may vary from venue to venue, state to state, uh, state to federal. But my general sense has been you might hear about witness or individual A or B or C, right? I mean, I, I, I think it's typically not Alan Weisselberg told us this stuff, right? I mean, I, we're, we're going to find out that probably that there are way more witnesses than Michael Cohen, but we might not know exactly who they are. Yeah, we don't know. And, and, and again, it just depends a lot depends on how this is charged, whether, you know, whether it's, it, it's charged, for example, as, you know, as, as a conspiracy where, you know, the, you know, those other players and the roles that they played uh, is, you know, is particularly important. But yeah, I, I would expect we're going to, we're going to see something about the roles of others because there, there's, Nobody who expects that this is going to be about something that Trump just did on his own, right? But they probably won't be named. Does that is that pretty much? Standard? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I expect they probably they probably won't be named again. You know, most of the most of the we don't see these these kinds of cases in you know as much in state court, and also, um, you know, this 
this is a, a an unusual, particularly unusual situation. So my my hunch is that yeah, you you probably won't see lots of names of witnesses, but they'll be described, and we can probably figure out who many or most or all of them are. But in a way, we don't even know yet what kind of assessment somebody like you would be able to make of what they sometimes refer to as strength of case here, right? I mean, it'll depend so much on how much detail they share, how specific these counts are, uh, what level of detail is in the speaking indictment, if that's what we get. Yeah. Any of the analysis that that we've seen so far, you know, so far is just just guesswork. Yeah, we, we've got to see what the actual indictment charges, what the crimes are, what the elements are, and and you know, and probably get some sense of what the you know what the the proof and evidence might be. You know, and again, you know, we 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 can we can guess at what some of those elements are, but until we see the indictments, it's really it's not fair to anybody to size up the strength or weakness of the, of the case which isn't stopping lots of people who need to fill their time and it's not stopping lots of you know people who need to spin one way or the other but really we we really do need to to wait and see you know ross i know that something is is historic when wolf blitzer says it's historic and he said it's historic i don't know probably about 89 times so but you i don't know even in your public twitterances um, you question whether that's exactly the right term to apply, particularly as we're standing on the uh, on the doorstep, as opposed to crossing the threshold into this case. Yeah, but he, uh, look, he, even if we're crossing the threshold in, uh, you know, I, I think I think we have to to keep in mind uh, that you know Trump is a former president, also known as a private citizen. Uh, he is not the president of the United States. Uh, the allegations here, from all accounts, do not uh, relate to his duties in office as the president. They relate to alleg- allegations of, uh, of alleged conduct while he was a private citizen. So, you know, it, it's it's not as if a sitting president or even a sitting vice president is is being charged with crimes. You know, Trump's a private citizen, and these are you know, this relates to private conduct. And so, I think you know we can uh, we can exaggerate it by emphasizing the historic nature of it, and and it's in certain people's interest to do that. Uh, you know, networks, news networks have to fill time. Uh, and you know, Trump is also a master of uh, of making a spectacle, uh, and so uh, so I I think he's also emphasizing how potentially historic this all is. But I think really when you when you get to it, a lot of the spectacle is spectacle for spectacle's sake. Yeah. In terms back to the historic question, I mean, a lot of it also depends how historic it is. Depends on whether this is kind of a one off or whether this starts to be a pattern. I mean, people like Jack Goldsmith, a former Bush counsel and now Harvard law professor, you know, he's he's somewhat anguished about this. I think he feels as though to use a phrase which I believe we 
first found in Watergate. The toothpaste gets out of the tube and you can't get it back in. Once you do something that's never been done before, you break a taboo. Uh, you know, all these other things historically have been dealt with in other ways, whether it was through President Ford's pardon or Nixon's, I mean, or Clinton's basic kind of deal at the end of his presidency um, that he would give up his law license and stuff like that, but he would, you know, he would, in return for which he wouldn't be prosecuted while a citizen. Um, but, you know, we are on terra incognita that way. And, and I guess one of the questions is, is this just such a freaking weird situation <laughs> that it required this or... And I'm afraid I default to the second option. Are we just going to start seeing a lot of this stuff? Well, it, it, it may be sort of a combination of both, but but this this actually is is a situation that the framers of the Constitution actually took uh, into account. You know, the impeachment clause in the Constitution, you know, talks about uh, the the fact that a a president can still be indicted after uh after the president's been impeached and removed from office so you know as as the framers were were drafting the constitution they they thought this through they thought through the the possibility that a former president may actually be uh be prosecuted now in, in some ways it's it's a, a little surprising that it hasn't happened until now um and you know this is a this has been a, a very unusual presidency and post-presidency. I mean, you know, it's the first president to have been impeached and acquitted twice, and, and the, the whole presidency has been the Trump presidency has been sort of, sort of, you know, very unusual. Um, but and I don't know whether it, it's likely to mean that this is going to happen or something like this is going to happen in the future. Trump, in so many ways, has kind of been a a one-off. But the, again, the situation itself isn't sort of you know beyond the ken and was even contemplated by the framers. Right. Just a, a factoid you can use to impress your friends if you're listening. Uh, in fact, the only sitting president to see the inside of a police station as a defendant was Ulysses S. Grant, who was stopped for speeding down the streets of Washington in his horse-drawn carriage. He paid 20 bucks and went on his way. I just want to wonder if he's going, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, so the other thing that makes this you know pretty unusual, Ross, is the existence of other nascent cases and some that are even riper than nascent. I mean, Trump is theoretically back in court, I think, later this month in the E. Jean Carroll uh, civic action that uh, involves assault and defamation. And then we've got the Georgia elections case. We've got the Jack Smith uh, special counsel investigation uh, into the, the records at Mar-a-Lago. Um, we know, I think we know that these people aren't on the phone to each other. So it's, this is not the X-Files. They're not going, you go first and then I'll go. But at some point, they may have to coordinate, right, just to, in terms of scheduling and like court appearances. And if, in fact, you have two or three cases unfolding, we might also see this rather unusual situation. First of all, they've got to decide, do the federal, does the federal government get the left ankle for the ankle monitor and then the state gets the right ankle? But won't they eventually have to sort of say, OK, I, I need them Tuesday? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And 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 that happens in in uh, in cases I'm involved in. You know, a lot of times you'll you'll have multiple jurisdictions with similar issues, state and federal. And yeah, they, the courts have to work together, and the prosecutors have to work together to to yeah figure out all this scheduling. You know, what's 
what one of the things I'm actually most interested in is assuming Trump continues to be a presidential candidate, how much of any deference is given to his to his campaign activities and how much of it all plays out pre-election day versus post-election day. Um, and, and uh, you know, because I could see him, you know, making some arguments about his unavailability if he, you know, continues to be the leading Republican candidate for president. Yeah. And I mean, this is such an interesting area, too. And I think it's a somewhat gray area. Uh, and I think it also may play differently at the level of Merrick Garland uh, at DOJ than it would at, at, in a state action. But, you know, in fact, Ross, you and I first met uh, <laughs> in a case here in Connecticut where you were uh, counsel to the office of the governor. You were not John Rowland's defense attorney. You were defending the office. Uh, and I was a nosy weasel reporter. Uh, and one of the things that's clear is that when somebody's in office, first of all, when a president's in office, everything that you just talked about before, you know, the, the constitutional apparatus of impeachment contemplates a divide between what happens when somebody's in office and when they're not. And we've got this DOJ memo that Mueller cited that also seems to have some governance. But the gray area is a campaign. And I think Donald Trump thinks when he's campaigning, he's like almost president. And and that and I'm thinking maybe somebody like Garland looks at it and goes, yeah, I would really like you know, the first debates in August or something. <laughs> if we're going to do something, it would kind of be good if there wasn't a presidential political process unfolding. I mean, Ross, I guess there's no real law about that. There's more kind of a, a feeling about it. Yeah. And and uh, I th- I would expect that it's something that Trump is going to play up. Uh, I, I, I would assume he's going to make much of the fact that he's the leading Republican candidate for president of the United States and all of this stuff's happening to try to, uh, affect that effort. You know, the, the, the first test of, of this question may actually come up today. And that's, uh, in whether the court imposes a gag order, um, which is not atypical to restrict what a defendant and the defendant's lawyers can say about the case. Um, normally, in the the reason for that is so that you're not tainting a jury pool. You know whether the court does that in this case, and whether Trump challenges it and says, "Wait a minute, uh, you know this." I'm, I'm the leading Republican candidate for the president of the United to be president of the United States. This is a campaign issue, a court. A state court can't tie my hands and prevent me from campaigning for president. It's, you know, it's it's a very, very, very uh, important, Trump would say, I think, First Amendment issue. And so I think that, you know, the the first, uh, you know, thing I'm looking for as this plays out in the context of a presidential campaign is that issue. Does the court issue a gag order? And then how expansive is it or not? Yeah, I mean, it feels like the gag order would be like King Canute commanding the tides. I mean, getting, I mean, we should say, I know enough about you, Ross, to know that if you were his counsel, you would be thinking, well, this is kind of a mixed bag here because I would really like it if he would shut up, actually, because <laughs> he gets himself in trouble when he talks. On the other hand, as you just stated, there is a pretty compelling First Amendment argument here, particularly political speech exists at a level of privilege higher even than just regular speech, which is why you can not lie in a toothpaste commercial, but you can lie in a political ad because political speech gets even it 
travels in a, a faster lane. Uh, and, and so, you know, there really is kind of a weight against imposition of a gag order if, in fact, we can legitimately claim there's a political campaign unfolding. Yeah, I would think so. And, and you know, especially here in this context where there is wall-to-wall media coverage. Uh, and, so, and, you know, the idea that you're going to find jurors who know nothing about the situation at all uh, is fanciful. And, you know, I, I think Trump could make a compelling argument that, you know, if all they learn is what they see on C, you know, CNN or MSNBC, you read in the New York Times, well, then that's not fair to him. Uh, and and does impinge on his ability to to speak uh, unconstitutionally. So I I, I think that the the issue of the gag order is going to be very interesting. So the other part of this, by the way, uh, Al Colling has just informed us that Trump has arrived at the court building and has gone in. <laughs> so um, so now you know that. Um, I, I know we're running out of time with you, and I want to say when Ross departs, because he has other things to do, uh, I will take your phone calls at 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Um, I have a couple of things that are – well, first of all, let's, let's say that one thing that you have addressed in the past is when you are representing a politician who is facing impeachment or some kind of other action – you're dealing with an unusual client. You're dealing with a client who's, if in fact he or she has been in office, they're kind of used to getting their way. And they also believe in their profound rhetorical powers because that's how they win debates and elections. And so forget about the judge imposing a gag order. As defense counsel, you maybe don't want them to testify. And, and you kind of don't want them running their mouth too much, even when they're not in court. I just assume this is the ultimate 9,000-pound gorilla. I mean, I, I don't see how any of that is going to be applied to him by by any defense counsel. Yeah, and and uh, I, I, it's hard to imagine anybody trying or him tolerating them trying. But, you know, what he says and how he says it, I, I think is, is a – you know, is a different matter. You know, I, I would think he'd want to take on, you know, the substance of the allegations, at least in some, you know, rough format, uh, you know, probably calling them, you know, a lie or whatever it is and calling the whole thing politically motivated, all that stuff I, I would expect to see. Uh, you know, I think uh, his defense counsel would not want to see him attacking uh, the prosecutor. Uh, would not want to see him saying anything that implies uh, that his supporters should do anything uh, unlawful and certainly not violent. So I, I, I think what his his lawyers would want to do is work with him to come up with some parameters, though, on on what he has to say. So uh, the last thing I maybe would like to ask you about is, well, first of all, just a technical point. Is it likely that things will also happen between Trump? and defense counsel and prosecutors outside the court? In other words, are there likely to be pre-trial conferences, opportunities to discuss possible plea bargains, things like that? As this unfolds, will there be meetings of that kind? And is the ex-president likely to be at them? So th- there will be meetings. You know, one of the first, thing that, first things that's going to happen is that the uh, the state has to turn over potentially exculpatory information. There has to be exchange of information. That's something that the lawyers work out. Uh, that is, uh, none of these things uh, are anything that that uh, that I can imagine Trump himself either. 
being a part of or wanting to be a part of. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of dialogue between uh, defense counsel and and the prosecutors about scheduling, about you know providing uh, uh, exculpatory information about you know what the evidence looks like, all, about motions practice. I think uh, for lots of reasons we're probably going to see a fair amount of motions practice here. You know, attacking the the substance of the indictment and demanding various discovery and all, all sorts of other things. Yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of dialogue between the prosecutors and defense counsel. So here's my last question. Uh, Every prosecutor that I've ever talked to has said to me that when you get like the toughest, toughest guy in the world into this process, the process that's beginning like right about this second as we're speaking, and and particularly if there's any opportunity to question them outside court in the course of trying to make a deal or getting somebody to roll over on somebody else or whatever, that the toughest guy in the guys in the world wilt. You know, the Susan McDougals of this world. Uh, are, you know, who just do the whole stretch and don't talk to anybody are famous because they don't do that. But also because, I mean, it's scary, right? This is the question I'm really asking. No matter how you prepare yourself, my sense is as defendant, once this is really happening, there's something a little bit scary about it. It's something you've seen on TV, but you didn't think was going to happen to you. Yes. Yeah. Trump should be, you know, he should not believe all of his own PR. Uh, you know, if the reporting stands, he's going to be charged with you know thirty-four felonies today. If that is true, that you know leads to potential jail time uh, in the you know twilight years of his life. Now, you know, I, I think a lot could then depend on what happens with the presidential campaign. It's hard to see a deal in which you know. Trump's anything other than exonerated before election day. After election day, uh, if he doesn't win, you know, then I think the the, the, the then the landscape changes. Uh, but I think pre-election day, it's hard to see a deal. All right. Well, we've been very fortunate to be able to monopolize so much of your valuable time. Ross Garber is a lawyer specializing in political investigations and impeachment and a legal analyst uh, for CNN. See him there. Ross, once again, thanks. Good to hear your voice again. It's great to talk to you. All right. So we're going to take a little break. Uh, When we come back, I will take your phone calls. You can just, uh, I don't know, you can get things off your chest. I mean, about this topic. This is not Ask or Tell Me Anything. This is just about this. 888-720-WNPR. That bottle of justice. I hear it sets you free You can be just you you want to be Who you want to be I think I'll have some of that Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. 
You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back. Thanks for listening today. We are doing an unusual thing, suspending our other planned programming, doing some live programming. Uh, even as this drama unfolds, we now know that Donald Trump is at the courthouse. Our number, uh, Ross is gone. <laughs> All you have is me. But our number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. It's really weird, too, because the minute I'm done with the show, I'm getting in a car, I'm driving to New Haven and teaching my political science seminar where we study contemporary political journalism. And obviously, we actually have a whole other thing we're talking about today, but the second half of the two-hour class is going to be about this. So it's kind of fun. Um, all right. So let's go. Uh, the number, 888-720-WNPR. If you don't have letters on your little phone thing, then it's just 888-720-9677. You can call up with either a question or a comment. Go right ahead. Here's Edward in Manchester getting things started. Hi, Edward. Hi, Colin. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I've always wanted to say that. Yes, yes. Well, that's, your bucket list is a little bit empty now. <laughs> um, forgive me. I tuned in late. You may have already covered this aspect of things, but I remember um, hearing some talking head yesterday uh, suggesting that Judge Merchan is considering issuing a gag order against Trump himself to keep him from making any further derogatory comments towards either Stormy Daniels, the DA, or him personally. Um, I was just wondering about the wisdom of doing it. I know the DA can't tell the judge what to do, but um, if anybody who wants to have him held accountable, I would think would prefer him to just keep self-sabotaging, keep racking up obstruction of justice charges. I, I believe that part of that parcel 34... Um, indictment uh, charges is going to include obstruction of justice. Yeah, I would be thunderstruck if obstruction wasn't in there. And and I actually think, I mean, we we're, I hate doing all this guesswork. We don't really know what Bragg's got, what, how he's thinking, except for certain things that he said. But he just seems, in terms of strength of case, if there wasn't a pretty strong, strong obstruction component, they'd be a lot more nervous about this. I, I don't, I mean, Ross is not here. I think I can answer some of the question the way that he would answer it. But first of all, in general, I... You know, <laughs> I have actually lived through multiple cases of this type. Not there's no there's no case of this type, but like impeachment cases and stuff with Ross. And he likes his clients to first of all agree not to testify in court, and they all think they should because they're said they're such geniuses. And in general, yes, any attorney, you, you know, the the potential for mistakes, uh, either mistakes that create the appearance of obstruction or just other dumb stuff you might say, um, you know, it, it's just better if they're not talking. But I don't right. think I don't think this guy's you know, this guy's not controllable. And and the thing that Ross pointed out that's important here is, in terms of Judge Merchant, I, I think he's got a problem with the First Amendment. You know, I, I think here, if in fact we can kind of heuristically say a political campaign is taking place and Trump is part of it, that it's very very difficult to gag political speech. You know, this is in many ways the most privileged speech within the constitutional framework, at least within the interpretation of constitutional law. So right. you know, to say you can't talk but you're running for president, 
Now, you can say, well, you can talk, but you can't talk about this, <laughs> uh, how, whether that's parsable. I will say that, you know, if it's a gag order, then if you violate it, it's contempt and it's a thousand bucks and up to 30 days in jail. So, sure, uh, yeah. you know, it's not it's not it's not chicken feed. I mean, the money's chicken feed to him, maybe, but the time isn't. So it's, it's not a discussing joke. With Ross, you were discussing with Ross about gag orders, but that had to do with the jury, I believe. No, no, we were talking specifically about what you're talking about. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, we're yeah, talking missed, about what you're I talking the about. First half of it. Yeah, I mean, okay, uh, you know, this it wouldn't it wouldn't be. I mean, if there were any way to draw lines from this case to other cases, then you could say it wouldn't necessarily be uncommon for the judge to issue something like that. But you have, you know, a situation that's unusual on a number of levels. He's the president, ex-president. He's an unusual ex-president. He's a guy who's not easy to control. You don't really, as a judge, want to keep going back to him. <laughs> Saying, all right, I'm going to put you in jail because you you violated it. On the other hand, we have a situation now where Bragg has already been not only threatened, but, you know, I mean, kind of tangibly threatened. Um, the idea of ratcheting that up higher, you know, you, you can have cases where, like, the locals don't like what the prosecutor is doing, but that's not what this right. is. This is right. all 50 states are in play, you know, and a lot of things can happen. One thing that I, I will say about all this isn't I'm not speaking to your question, but um, I think one of the things that probably should change pretty soon is the inherent loneliness of Alvin Bragg. And I was listening to MSNBC has a pretty interesting podcast they're doing. I think it's called Prosecuting Trump or something like that. But anyway, it's two prosecutors. And one of them said, you know... I mean, obviously, they don't coordinate all this stuff, and there's a lot of thought, oh, why is this case going first, you know, when it's it has a lower magnitude maybe than some of the others? And, you know, they just can't plan that out. But he said, or she said, I can't remember which one said this, you know, just looking at the situation, if I were Jack Smith down in Florida or maybe the prosecutor in Georgia, I'd be thinking, if there's any way I can get this case moving, moving in a similar fashion sooner rather than later, it might be good just in the sense that you don't want Bragg being the only person doing this because then he's just got a bullseye at his back, you know, and there's, uh, in, you know, and that bullseye ranges from being a target for, you know, people who actually might want to do him harm or threaten him, but also, and we'll kind of get into this in just a second, these bizarre attempts by the Republican majority in the House to see if they can find some way to make his life miserable. Uh, it's a little bit mm -hmm. harder to do if there's multiple cases. Anyway, I don't know if I didn't. I, that was I had, I, Go ahead. I'll get off and give someone else a chance, but um, I hope somebody else wants to talk about the judge's decision not to allow cameras into the courtroom. I, I think that's wrong-headed. That's just my opinion. All right. Well, that's what this part of the show is, is for people's opinions. Yeah. So the number to call uh, is we got plenty of open lines. 866-888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. And yeah, I mean, the role of journalism in all this is also kind of sui generis. Um, we, we, we don't there, – there aren't a lot of things you can compare this to. And I actually – think that even though I'm sort of pro-journalism and I, I'm pro-access and all that kind of stuff, I, I think he might have made a pretty good decision, <laughs> decision here. This is already, you know, playing out in way too public a way, way too extreme a way. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, you know, I mean, I would like a world, maybe to Edward's point, I would like to be in a world where people did feel um, 
where first of all, access was pretty universal. You know that at minimum there'd be a moving pool, you know, a, a pool television camera in the room recording everything, and from the Supreme Court down to the lowest uh, state or local court, that would at least be an option. Wouldn't be prohibited. Uh, maybe a pool mic for radio audio uh, feeds. I, I think that that's by and large a really good thing, and there, there really isn't any particular reason why processes can't be open. But um, this, you know, since, since in fact, there's judicial discretion, <laughs> if there were ever a moment to exercise some judicial discretion, it might be this. I personally get nervous. Like, I don't know, I saw a picture in the New York Times or someplace of the three actual lead prosecutors on this with their names. And I thought, oh, <laughs> like, I know I'm a journalist and I know why we run pictures of prosecutors walking out of courthouses. But, you know, the, the level of craziness, the level of really toxic engagement with this already, and, and it's going to get worse, uh, is, it, it, makes, it feels a little bit like a special case. So I don't know. I'm not as ready to criticize that decision, even though, yeah, I, you know, I'm a journalist. I like openness. I like access. I think it's a better world. All right. Our number, 888-720-WNPR. 888 uh, And before I take in, I don't actually have any other calls right now, but that's fine. Um, I, I do want to also address something that's come up a lot. First of all, I've been fascinated lately in general by the way our history uh, informs our understanding of the present. That we understand the, I mean, Orwell in 1984 says something like, he who controls the past controls the present. Uh, and, and that's sort of true. Uh, and it's why, in fact, you see battles over history books and stuff like that. Because to understand the present, you have to understand the past. To understand this particular moment, yeah, you have to. You don't have a lot to work with, but you have Watergate. You have the Clinton thing. There's just a way in which we understand better because of knowing what came before, even though we know that now is kind of a departure from before. But there's also this whole question of why we have this enshrined idea of this sovereign immunity, right? There's, there's, you know, most other countries, Western democracies, not just Western democracies. I mean, you know, it's not uncommon to even put on trial a sitting head of state. Uh, Israel, South America, um, Europe, uh, it, it's happened in lots and lots, oh, South Korea multiple times. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like, why would, why do we have that idea? Uh, it is priced a little bit into the Constitution. I mean, the implication seems to be that impeachment uh, is the alternative to some kind of normal you know, criminal process with a sitting head of state. But, and there's also this Justice Department memorandum. It's not a law or anything else that seemed to rule the day in the case of the Mueller report. But, you know, I, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, I don't think this is such a bad departure anyway. I, I think even setting aside the political parts of it and whatever my feelings about Donald Trump might be, I don't think it's such a bad thing. Anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll have a little bit of time for more phone calls should you decide to take that step. And if you don't, you're just going to have to listen to me babble. 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677.
All right. First of all, some time to say some thank yous. First of all, to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. We've had a busy day here today. We've actually recorded most of a show that we will air next week about hate watching and hate listening. Uh, no connection to what we're doing today. And now we're live doing this. And live doing this means kind of all hands on deck for us, starting with Lily Tyson, our senior producer, Jonathan McPants, uh, who's uh, handling an awful lot of clips and audio and feeding me information and telling me the actual names of things when I say them wrong. Carolyn McCusker! Uh, joining us from 2153. She's our new producer here. She's uh, also uh, in the building with us, entered by that portal. The portal is like, it's just shiny. I don't like it. It's a time portal. I don't know. Can maintenance come up and do something about that? Uh, all right. So we get some people calling in here, and we also have somebody who called in and kind of left a message, which I will address in just a second. The number, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Uh, we'll answer Gabe's question in just a second, but we got Ronald from Torrington sitting on the line here. Let's go to him. Ronald, what are you thinking about? Hey, okay. Um, this is something I'm, I'm terrified. Um, I'm 80 years old. Well, I've seen a lot of stuff, politicians here and there, whatever. Um, I'm understanding that right now there are people that have been contributing money to the Donald, Donald uh, Trump defense fund, mm-hmm. okay, I think, right? Now, this absolutely scares, us, <laughs> scares me that there are people out there that are willing to give money to this man. He flies from Florida to New York City in his own private jet, right? He's got, I don't know, what the hell he's got, Mar-a-Lago down there? That's got to be, who, I I don't, it scares me that there are people willing to support this man. I mean, it just terrifies me that this can happen in this country. I don't know, I'm... Well, I I, one thing I can tell you, Ronald, is uh, as a reporter or journalist or whatever the heck it is that I am, one thing that I we tend to do as journalists who cover campaigns is we often will sign up like we want to get, you know, emails, stuff like that. I've never seen, I have never, ever in my life seen anything like the Trump fundraising operation. I mean, it sort of has multiple arms. You get emails all the time from uh, allegedly from Trump himself or from Don Jr. or various other members of the family. Uh, And I mean, this is sometimes for campaign funds. Now there are also pleas for defense money and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, look. You know, I mean, close to, I mean, less than half the company country voted for him, but there's still a lot of people who voted for him. And some of those people still feel as though the election was stolen, still believe the big lie. I don't think it's that surprising uh, that they're willing to do that. I think what's surprising, what has startled me a little bit is seeing somebody like Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, people who were actively actively insulted. I mean, there's no way to so successfully insult Ted Cruz that he will not continue to be a toady. Uh, But I mean, you know, I don't know. Jeb Bush came to my class in 2018 uh, and he spent two hours with me in my class. Um, And, you know, you kind of got the measure of him. We told him that we wouldn't go public with anything that got said and we never have. But, you know, it was I don't think it's any secret. In fact, he went out right after that class and made up some public remarks that into, that were disparaging, very fundamentally disparaging of Trump. Uh, I don't think there's any secret what he thinks of Donald Trump. So the idea that he would take to social media or anywhere else, you know, and, and, and lend his voice 
Uh, that does surprise me a little bit. The willingness of people, like I sort of get, you know, who Jim Jordan is, what Jim Jordan is. And, you know, I, I know he will make himself available, and so will Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene and George Santos, I think, wants to be there for Donald Trump, which is hilarious. Who doesn't want George Santos to show up, you know, attest to their character? But, you know, somebody like Jeb Bush, he could just sit this one out. He really could. And, and I actually don't understand Particularly, well, I don't know. I don't understand. I have a hard time identifying with it. I think it would be understandable if he did sit it out. Maybe he just really is genuinely outraged by this. That would be the other possibility. All right. Let me grab a couple more calls. I don't want to run out of time and not address Gabe's question, too, because it's a good one. Sherry Patterson, Sherry from Patterson, New York, is with us. Hi, Sherry. You're on the air. Hi. Great to have you doing the show. Thank you. My comment is dealing with this whole thing, people keep saying, oh, this is going to lead to more persecutions, more prosecutions and everything like that, and they're going to get into people's business. And my thought is, good. Because if you do it, if you're committing crimes when you're in public office, then you should be held accountable. And I don't care if you're a Democrat, Independent, or Republican. I could care less. I am so sick of government not doing their jobs when everybody else is working so hard. Yeah, I mean, I think, Sherry, the concern is not that, but, you know, I mean, when you consider the tenor of, say, the House of Representatives right now and the messages that they might be, well, they've just come right out, many of them have come right out and said it. Well, okay, well, you know, Joe Biden can be indicted for something in Idaho, you know, and we'll just do it there and we'll find a prosecutor there who wants to do it. And we'll, you know, come up with some argument for doing it. And I, I mean, tit for tat will really be a problem here. And, and if they're going to handle it that way, uh, I think we we are going to go through a period of chaos that Barack Obama is going to be, you know, summoned in on some, you should pardon the expression, trumped up charge or whatever. I understand that malfeasance, genuine malfeasance needs to be addressed. Um, and, but I, I, if it's not genuine malfeasance, it's, it's simply tit for tat, okay, you did this, now I'll do this to you. This could really slow down and really gunk up and further toxify our political process. Your thoughts? I 100% agree with that. Now, I'm also a former teacher, and I happened to see Fran Leibowitz the other night. And one of my comments was, you know, why why don't we have better report cards on what people are doing in their jobs? And she said, we do. They're called elections. To me, that's that's bogus because it's not you're not really finding out what did they do. I mean, you have to you have to work pretty hard to figure out what people in federal government are doing. So here's an example. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's supposedly coming today to New York to support Trump. What part of her job is that? <laughs> well, That's what yes. I want to know. What is she not doing that she should be doing instead of this? See, I'm, it's just like... Look, congressional jobs, congressional jobs are very, very different from... I always tell people, being a governor or a mayor is really hard because like, you're around and people expect you to do stuff too. They want to know when it doesn't get done. If you're a member of Congress, you have you know a comparable amount of latitude. There's there isn't as strict a schedule or a set of results uh, that you are expected to adhere to. So so it is kind of a different thing. Um, so I want to quickly go over. We got some other calls coming in. I was kind of hoping that I would have time also to answer Gabe's question. Um, and I think Gabe's question uh, had to do with whether or not is it, see whether these trials with Trump will be a pathway to begin the process of prohibiting lies from public speakers, especially with AI and fact-checking? I mean, the answer is, at least in the case of politicians, no. No. I I mean, my understanding of the First Amendment and the way it is construed by federal courts is that you are allowed to tell lies. You can make a campaign. I mean, you know, 
I mean, Mitt Romney ran a campaign commercial against Barack Obama that was 180 degrees away from the truth. He took a, a clip and he like took the word no or not out of it and made it sound like Obama was saying the opposite of what he said. And that is totally legal. And it probably will always have to be. You know, I mean, unfortunately, lying is priced into politics because, as I said before, we privilege political speech higher than almost anything else. All right. I don't think I understand what this question is, but we, we have time and we've got a few more calls coming in here. We're going to be wrapping up soon. Jack from Boston with a question. Right. Hi. Um, do we in South Carolina have the public, that is, have any idea how far along that state is to, I, I don't know if they have an, a grand jury impaneled. Um, you sure, are you talking about Georgia, maybe? I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's no, they're nowhere. In other words, they're behind Bragg. Bragg is out in front of everybody else. Um, right. I realize that. Yeah. But how long do they have a, a grand jury in Georgia uh, looking at this? I believe there is a grand jury. Um, don't hold me to that, but I believe there is a grand jury in Georgia. And and but you know, there's as I say, there might be a little sense of accelerating the timeline for two different reasons in places like Georgia, and, and one of them would be that. Um, that we, as I said before, uh, it, it's it's an unhealthy situation with Bragg kind of hanging out there, and nobody else is doing is doing the same thing. He's just so much more of a target for all kinds of abuse that way. But also for the reasons that Ross and I were talking about, the more there's a discernible political process unfolding, the more Trump can try to make the argument that he really shouldn't be touched uh, because he's a political candidate. So um, I, I, you know. You may see a little bit more action out of Fulton County than you've seen so far. All right. This is probably the last question. And if I have time at the end, I'll try to tell you what the schedule is for coverage today on Public Radio. Here's Scott in Colchester. Hey, I was uh, just going to comment on your tit for tat uh, that you were mentioning a little bit ago. And I think the issue there is that we can't agree on facts anymore. Um, And so if you're going to you know, bring Biden into it or bring him to court, as long as it's the truth and as long as it's facts, I mean, we do want these people held accountable. And I just think, uh, you know, the one side has sort of gone their separate way on facts. Yeah, it depends which which side that you you think. I mean, the Republican side has committed itself to what is now like sixty courts have ruled a lie. Uh, right. That being the the lie about election results. But but yeah, I mean, look if there's if there's a case that a re, that a judge will hear that will, a judge will not throw out. I will. I'm not talking about that. And by the way, there is a grand jury. There was a grand jury uh, in, uh, in in Georgia. Um, we don't know everything. It being a grand jury, we don't know what happened. But but yeah, I'm not talking about sort of squelching reasonable, legitimate cases. But if it just turns into a process of tit for tat, I'm going to file nuisance charges against you just to get revenge. Uh, I, you know, which is, by the way, what I think is going to happen. I don't think it's going to be particularly healthy for this republic. And I think it's going to be hard to get stuff done that needs to get done. So um, where are we right now? So we now think that NPR will go into special coverage. Um, There's an Alvin Bragg press conference at 3.30. That will be very, very interesting, that press conference. Uh, And then we'll probably stay in, NPR will stay in special coverage uh, until the end of that and whatever else is coming. So uh, anyway, we have to go. We're out of time. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. 